Hey, it's great to see you all. Welcome to First. My name is Daniel. I'm our group's pastor here at the church. And we are in week two of our series that we're calling Long Story Short. And we did something incredible last week, quite frankly. We preached the entire Bible in one Sunday, and we still got you out in time for lunch. So you're welcome for that. We kind of wanted to pat ourselves on the back before we got going today. But beyond that, there is obviously a ton that we couldn't pack in the Bible. We obviously didn't go verse by verse, but we really covered the main movements of the story of Scripture. And the main point we really want to land in this series is that the story of Scripture has transformative power. When we say something like that, don't we all recognize that a good story possesses the potential to change us, to drive something within us, to call us to action? What we believe is that the story of Scripture is worth putting all of our faith in, all of our hope in, and sharing with everyone that we know. And last week, as we looked at the entire storyline of Scripture, we came to this conclusion. Scripture's storyline is about a single Savior. And I kind of wanted to unpack and review how we got to that point. So here in just a moment up on the screen, we're going to put up the narrative arc of Scripture one more time. And we really encapsulated this through six different symbols that we worked up to talk about each step of the story. So real quickly, it starts with creation, this little circle. And what we mean is God stands before everything and he creates everything. And then we see like this conflict that arises. We see this little squiggly line through the circle. And what we call this is the crash. A lot of people have called it the fall. It's this idea that humanity has made a willful choice to disobey God. And it has created a fracture in all kinds of different things in our world. But then we see that God in a specific time and a specific space... I tried to say specific really quickly as I worked through this. In a specific place, he sets apart the people of Israel, and then there's this cycle or this series of choices that starts where instead of contributing to the solution, really God's people continue to perpetuate the problem of sin and everything that's broken in the world. And our story really comes to fulfillment in a natural tipping point, a climax, when we reach the cross at the top of the story arc mountain. This is this idea of God stepping in where we couldn't step in and righting the wrongs of our story. Now, what you'll see on the other side of the climax of the story is that the cycle actually switches. And this people, the church, everyone who believes in Jesus are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be the change in the world that we could once not be. So we're actually a part of a solution instead of contributing to the problem because of God's power within us. And then the final little note that you see there is that little boulder circle. This is this idea of eternity or the conclusion where at a perfect time, God is going to send Jesus to return and that all things are going to be brought to fulfillment in heaven and on earth in and through Jesus. That's the entirety of our story. And what you recognize is that everything leading up to the moment of the cross in the Old Testament points to our need for a Savior. And everything that has happened because of the cross in the New Testament, in the story of the church, and in our lives, it points back to what Jesus did as well. The bottom line is this, after we work through all of that entire review, the Bible is a story with transformative power. And this is really important. You need to know this. The Bible is not just a bunch of facts for us to learn so that we can do really well at Bible Trivia Night, okay? Can I get a couple of head nods on that? There is something more significant going on than just Bible Bowl gold stars when it comes to learning about the story of the Bible. 
That means nothing to like 85% of you. I totally understand that. Now, let me tell you this. This isn't to say that dwelling upon and memorizing Scripture isn't a significant thing. It isn't to say that if you put Scripture to heart, that it wouldn't completely transform your life. That's not what I'm saying whatsoever. What I am saying is this. If you come to this document, this set of 66 different documents collated together that we call the Bible, and you're just looking for information, you're going to miss the transformative power that is infused within this entire story, and that can change you in a radical way. But i got to ask you, I wonder, by a raise of hands, is there anyone in the room who's ever felt guilty about knowing not enough about the Bible? Anyone by a raise of hands. Awesome. I figured that there was a little bit of this as well. And when you catch this idea of there being so much in the Bible, I mean, it would take you a long time to just read through and do like the accelerated reading test on the Bible. Am I right? There's a lot of stuff that we can forget, but I want to help you understand here for a second that learning facts about the Bible is not the end-all be-all of being a follower of Jesus. Okay. And so I want to introduce you to a bit of a game that's going to require some audience participation. We call this ramen or amen, okay? Here we are. Now, can you please do a little bit worse than the last service because they did way too well and it ruined the illustration, okay? What we're doing here is we're basically discovering, is this an ingredient in ramen or is this a name from the Old Testament, okay? All right? And none of us are going to want to eat ramen after this, okay? So, anyhow, if you haven't already made that choice. So, for starters, we have number one, ramen or amen, base math. Who has got ramen for base math, okay? Some of you bold enough to step out on a limb. Who's got an Old Testament name? Anyone? Okay, okay, let's see what we got here. Oh, from Genesis 36.3, also base math, daughter, apparently base math is a good name for a girl. okay. Moving right along. Number two, Mizah. Did we find this on a ramen packet? Ramen? Anyone? Anyone? Amen. Who's like, this is a super holy thing? Okay. Mizah. Chiefs? Yeah, that, that's apparently some sort of tribe or place from the Old Testament. Okay. Number three. Let's roll with this. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. Do we got ramen, anyone? Okay, so some more audience participation, a little bit bolder. Who's got amen? Okay, here we go. Yes, this is an ingredient in ramen. Okay, a couple more of these. Number four, magog. I really hope this isn't in ramen. Who's got ramen right here? Okay, who's got amen? You guys are doing too well at this, okay? You get a gold star, magog. It's from Genesis, okay. Number five, this is the last one. Holy moly. Amen. Oh, see, I was tricking you. Uh, ramen. Excellent. Okay, yes, this is an ingredient in ramen. Give yourself a round of applause for doing so well. Gold stars on the way out, I promise you. Okay, so with all that said, what we're really getting into is we're trying to untap a little bit more of the transformative power of Scripture. So we're asking a couple of core questions today. And it starts with this. How do we know that we're actually supposed to view the Bible as a story? I think that's a good question because even though like 43% of this is written in narrative form, okay, how are we sure to know that there is actually an interweb story going on here in the Bible? Second question is this, maybe for those of you who are a little bit more convinced and you're already following Jesus, how does knowing the story of scripture actually help us follow Jesus better? Okay, 
So how do we know the Bible is actually a story? How is knowing the story help us follow Jesus better? And this is where we start. When we pay attention to Jesus, when we hear him talk about faith, when we hear him talk about God, when we hear him talk about creation, when we hear him talk about what it means to live life the way that God intended it to be lived, guess what? If you're leaning in and paying attention, Jesus is a storyteller. He tells stories, or parables as he called them which are these short, relatable stories that would have meant something in the real lives of the people that he was speaking to. Now, one reason why Jesus shares stories is purely pragmatic. And I don't know if you knew this, but in the world Jesus lived in, nine out of ten people could not read or write. So you or I, when we want to learn something, we have a smartphone in our pocket, and we go and we type something into Google, and it shoots back the answer, or we pick up a book at the library, and we learn something. Nine out of ten people were not capable, obviously, from a technology standpoint, but from a pragmatic standpoint, if 90% of the people can't read or write, you're going to need to be a good storyteller if you want to communicate truth. And here's the other thing, and I don't know if Jesus even did this on purpose, but have you ever noticed that there is something about a good story that is just so innate within who we are as human beings. When someone's telling a good story, you lean in in a way that you wouldn't if I was just spouting out facts and information and trivia research. Now, if there was anyone in the entire world who had an opportunity to just list off facts about the Bible, wouldn't it have been Jesus? I mean, he's God after all, right? He would have had the complete authority to say, this is what's true, believe it, do it, and Just cut it at that. But Jesus isn't like that whatsoever. Because here's the thing about Jesus. He understands people. Now, I could get up here every time that I preach, and I could read scripture like Genesis 36 and all the Raman and Raman names for 30 minutes, and then make some really rigid and dry application. And maybe like four of you would be really down for that, okay? But the rest of us are going to be holding our eyelids open or trying to check our fantasy football team for the rest of the sermon, okay? You're not going to respond to that whatsoever. So what we find Jesus doing, far from fact-listing, we find Jesus leaning in and telling good stories. Stories that may make us uncomfortable. Stories that inspire us. Stories that lead us to ask more questions questions, better questions. And so today, here's what I want you to do. Would you grab your Bible or your app or just follow along on the screen? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 13, okay? And what we're going to do together today, this is the first book of the New Testament, about halfway through the book of Matthew. We're going to pay attention to the first story that Jesus' friend, Matthew the tax collector, ever recorded Jesus sharing, or a parable which is the word Jesus used to describe these stories. So, as you're turning there, this is important. Up to this point in Jesus' life, he's been trouncing about Israel, teaching in these places called synagogues, which were basically places of Jewish instruction. If you're a good Jewish person, you go to the synagogue to learn more stuff about God, kind of like you come to church to learn more stuff. But today, something different is happening. See, Jesus, he's such a great storyteller, and he's doing so many miraculous things that all kinds of people are following him around. They're coming from miles and miles away, and they've all gathered on the beach of the Sea of Galilee. And there's so many people there that Jesus, he does this incredible thing. He actually steps out in a boat, and he stands in the boat and teaches to the people on the shore because it acts as a natural voice carrier. 
his voice on the water. They're quiet enough to hear his words reverberate off of the water onto the shore. And with all these people assembled, this great crowd, Jesus leans in and uses this as an opportunity to talk about what it means like to live life in God's kingdom. So we're going to start in verse 3. It'll be on the screen, but you can follow along with me. This is what it says. Jesus said, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop 160 and 30 times what was sown. And then Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear. And the disciples came and asked him, why do you speak to the people in parables? Jesus, why, why do you tell stories? Now, if you've been a part of church for your entire life, a lot of this sounds familiar. But if you're even just a farmer, you're probably sitting there thinking to yourself, why would I throw seeds along a rocky place or along a path? That doesn't make a whole ton of sense. And you're right. You want the soil to be ripe for the seed. But in Jesus' time, this was apparently a common agricultural practice. You just sow as many seeds as you can, hoping for the greatest yield or harvest that you possibly can. So it would have made sense to the people listening. And some seeds, they fall on the path, and they never take root. And the point here isn't that people don't understand the story, but like all the information that we process in life on a day-to-day -day basis, there are so many things that we don't necessarily think aren't true, but they don't hit the inspiration meter with us. And so really, these seeds along the path, they're like the people who maybe they intellectually understand God's kingdom, but it doesn't make a difference in their lives. And so you take a step further. Some seeds fall on rocky places, and they spring up really quickly. And this would have been really common in Israel, too. Because when the seeds fall upon the rocks in an arid and dry climate like this, it would have been all kinds of common for these plants to spring up, and as soon as it got hot again, for them to wither and die. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but in your walk with God, in your spiritual life, have you ever been on fire for God, and then the first time some opposition came your way, your faith fizzled out? You started to revert back to the person that you used to be. This is a common experience that most of us share. And Jesus is really bringing up this point that someone who truly responds to the good news has deep roots. They don't just have this rocky soil that withers right away. Finally, Jesus brings up this idea of thorns that seeds get sown among. And this is the idea that in our lives... There are all kinds of worry and distraction and fear. And Jesus goes on to explain this, that choke out the life of the good news, especially, he says later on, wealth, which scares me because of where we live in the world. And the whole point is that there are all kinds of us who can't really receive the good news, who can't receive the message of God's kingdom because we've got too many distractions. There are too many thorns. And finally, in a very straightforward way, Jesus talks about good soil, soil that receives the good news, that receives God's kingdom. In an almost a natural way, it produces a crop a hundred times what you would have expected. Now, here's the thing about a good story. It'll cause you to wrestle. 
It'll cause you to ask questions. It'll cause you to feel uncomfortable before it resolves the tension. And that's exactly what's been happening for Jesus followers and anyone who have read these passages for thousands of years now. Here's a couple things that we know for sure. If we are going to be good news people, people who are proclaiming God's kingdom, we can't control the soil. All we can control is the seeds that we sow. It's not our job to mandate what type of soil the seeds fall on. We just need to keep sowing. But if you're paying attention, you're probably asking yourself this question too. Well, what type of soil am I? Am I rocky soil? Am I thorn-stricken soil? Am I good soil? I'm not here to answer that question for you today, and I don't even know if the point of this parable is to answer that question. But we think Jesus tells stories because they carry the power to directly impact us and cause us to take this narrative, take this story, internalize it, and make a decision about it. So for one... Jesus brings up this idea of having ears and seeing. The truth is, with a story, all of us can hear it, all of us can see it if it's a movie, but we all have the ability to decide whether that story is going to impact us or not. And really, with stories, they give us the opportunity to change if we want to change, but if our hearts are already hard, they'll continue to remain hard. That's the reality of a story. So, Jesus tells stories. Jesus values stories. And when we come to this conclusion, we learn a few key things. For starters, when we see the Bible as a story, it brings life. When we see the Bible as a story, it brings life. You see, it would be really shameful if we heard the entire narrative of Scripture and we just thought that was a good moral lesson. But when we hear the story of Scripture, we start to imagine maybe there really was a person, a carpenter's son, who claimed he was the son of God, who went to die for the sins of mankind on a real hill, on a real Roman cross. And maybe just maybe that is something that I can respond to. Here's the other thing that we learn: Seeing the Bible as a story brings it down to earth. There are all kinds of things that I could tell you straightforward that would just really offend you and that you would never internalize, even if they're true. But in a way, stories kind of come in at a slant. Stories have a way of communicating things that are true, that we wouldn't otherwise receive. But because it was told in the form of a story, we have the opportunity to change and the opportunity to grow. Finally, we learned this. Seeing the Bible as a story brings it all together. How are we supposed to make any coherent sense of 66 documents written over thousands of years in different languages to different people groups. Well, when we understand the transformative power that's driving and bringing this entire story together, we have the opportunity to understand not just the plot points of the story, but the power of this story, and to allow that story and that power to change us and move us. Now, stories... They're not just something that Christians value. And this is something that's really important. It's important to understand that even people who have no view of God being sovereign over all creation and sending Jesus to the earth, there are all kinds of people who understand the objective value of stories. So we want to give you an opportunity to check out an example of that right now.
Well, it all comes down to one core thing, and that is emotional investment. The more emotionally invested you are in anything in your life, the less critical and the less objectively observant you become. And the greatest emotional investment of all is falling in love. Now, falling in love resembles a good story. Do you remember the last time you fell in love? You? Good for you. It's a beautiful feeling, isn't it? Sure that I'm actually Do you remember how you longed minutes. and how you yearned and how you dreamt? And then you looked at her and maybe you thought, God, I love the way you chew that apple. So crunchy. Thank you. Oh, Thank you. And the way you slurp that tea just over the edge, you know? Oh, it's so sexy. Love it. And then about 13 months later, when you biochemically fall in out of love, 13 months later, on an average, you fall out of love. Suddenly, you find yourself sitting in the sofa, and then suddenly you hear a sound. You go like, what's that? And you go over to the kitchen, and you look, and you go like, oh, it's you. You're eating an apple there. <laughs> Could you just keep that down just a little bit? Yeah, you're kind of spraying the table there. Please, please don't. And you sit down comfortably again, and just a minute later, you hear somebody drinking tea from the kitchen going, and suddenly, this is all annoying to you. Have you been there? 30 months later, our critical thinking and our cortex comes home from a one-year-long vacation, and we start questioning things. Now, during those 30 months, what happened was that your brain was flooded with neurotransmitters and hormones, hijacking your cortex, throwing your objectively observant skills out of the window. And the thing with the storytelling is that the same thing can happen. It's and my point is this, 100,000 years ago, we started developing our language. It's sound to say that we started using storytelling to transfer knowledge from generation to generation. 27,000 years ago, we started transferring knowledge from generation to generation through cave paintings. 3,500 years ago, we started transferring knowledge from generation to generation through text. 28 years ago, PowerPoint was born. Which one do you think our brain is mostly adapted to? Now, I don't have the benefit of an accent like that, but it is clear that stories compel people across all cultures and across all belief systems. You know, there's this 19-year-old uh, kid, uh, kind of grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. You know the type, right? And... Uh, he was actually born in his father's late age, the son of a father who owned a conglomerate of Fortune 500 companies. And man, this kid had everything he could ever want. He was really like the heir to this entire conglomerate of companies. But instead of appreciating what had been tossed down to him, instead of appreciating the hand he had been dealt in life, instead of just understanding that he could be apprenticed and developed by his father, he worked himself up, he riled himself up, he felt like he deserved to ask his father to sell what his share of the stocks of the company would be so he could receive a big fat check and do with it whatever he wanted to do. And man, everyone was offended from all the employees in the company who found out about it to all the family members who just felt so deeply 
disrespected. And everyone was just buzzing, what's going to happen, what's going to happen? And to everyone's surprise, that old father gave the son exactly what he had asked for. He sold off all the stocks, wrote him a fat check, and just gave it to him. And next thing you know, the kid is on a private jet out to a West Coast swing and then to Las Vegas. And to no one's surprise whatsoever, over the course of six months, through gambling, through prostitution, through all kinds of luxurious purchases, through drug abuse, he squandered every last bit of his share of the company. He got to the point where the only thing that was keeping him afloat in a nasty little studio apartment in Los Angeles was running drugs for a local drug dealer. He was underweight, addicted, and man, he would have done anything even just to scrounge up enough money to buy some ramen noodles to throw in the microwave. Now he spent a couple of months like that, completely destitute, ruining his life, desperate, broken, until in his spirit he had this realization. You know, what if, what if I just went groveling back to my dad? Maybe, just maybe, he'd give me a spot in the basement of his house. Yeah, I know, he'll never see me the same way again, but I'm, I'm at the end of my rope. I've got nothing here. I'd be better off dead. And so over the course of a couple of weeks, he gathered enough discipline to scrounge up enough money to get a single Greyhound bus ticket back to his hometown. And by the time he was on that bus, man, he was withdrawing. He was nervous, as you can imagine, just shaking, wondering what would happen when he got home and knocked on that door. What would his dad say to him? Little did he know, though, that over the course of his entire revelry, all the terrible things that he was doing, his dad had maintained access to his bank account. And when he bought that Greyhound bus ticket, his dad had gotten a notification. And before he could even step off the bus, waiting at the bus station, with a face and eyes full of tears, was his old dad waiting on him. And you know, this kid, this brat 19-year-old, he's a mess. And he just is stumbling off the bus, still strung out. And he just gets down on his knees, just face full of snot and tears, barely able to articulate anything. And he tries to work up the words to say to his dad, Dad, I don't need anything from you. I know you'll never see me the same way again. I know there's nothing that I can do to restore our relationship. Before he can even sell his case, there's his dad right there with him on his knees. Tears streaming down his face, saying, son, welcome home. Welcome home. There's someone here today who is so convinced that they are too far gone, too riddled with stupid decisions, 
that if there even is a God that he would ever desire to have any type of intimate connection with you, that he could ever look on you with love, you're too abused, neglected, whatever life has thrown your way, and you are just convinced that God is sitting on the stoop of heaven just waiting for you to die so he can smite you in the presence of the entire heavenly host. You're just so convinced that he wants nothing to do with you. Let me tell you something. If that's our picture of God, then we've accepted the wrong facts and the wrong stories about who he is. Because the stories that Jesus tells about our Heavenly Father look a whole lot more like an old dad broken down on his knees at a bus stop than any of the lies that you've learned over the course of your life. And he's waiting there for you and he's simply saying, welcome home. Will you come back? Will you come home? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to see you clearly. But if we're being honest, we've accepted facts and narratives about you that are not true. As wicked as we can be, as sinful as we can be, God, as in need we are of saving, not for a minute, not for a minute. Have you ever abandoned us? Not for a minute have you forsaken us? Not for a single moment has your desire and love for us been moved. I pray in the strong and gracious and powerful name of Jesus that we would accept the stories that he tells about who you are that we would quit clinging to pictures of you that aren't true. Help us to embrace this story that you're inviting us into. Help us to come back home. We lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want you to do something with me for a moment. Would you stand if you're able? If you're newer to first, what we do in this time is we respond to who God is and the story he is revealing about who he is to us. And so something that's central to this time is we share communion. There are, I think, six tables surrounding the room. If you have a relationship with Jesus, I want you to go ahead and I want you to walk there when you're ready. We'll move to do this. And I want you to take that little piece of bread and that little cup of juice. And I want you to remember that in and through Jesus, God is saying, welcome home. Welcome back. Come on home. I love you. God is doing something so mysterious and profound in and through Jesus that we could actually have a restored relationship with him. Let's celebrate that together in just a moment. Others of us, we're prepared to be generous in this time, whether you're doing that on the Give app on your phone or if you've brought a gift to put in the Give and Respond boxes, please feel free to do that during this time as you feel uh, moved to move. Uh, but something else that you can do is you can also take that connection card and you can write out a little bit of contact information. If you're ready to take a step, you can fold that up and put it in the given response boxes as well. But for some of us, quite frankly, today is the day to internalize and fully accept the stories that Jesus tells about God and not the lies that we've believed. 
And so something that we're actually going to do in a few weeks from today on December 9th is we're going to have a baptism Sunday, which is an opportunity for us to fully identify with Jesus as our Lord and Savior and to publicly proclaim before everyone assembled that he is the one by which we identify ourselves. He is the one who determines our identity. He is the one who determines our standing and our relationship with God. So today, maybe your decision looks like this, just coming in surrender, maybe even at a prayer bench or quietly where you're sitting and surrendering yourself to Jesus and saying, I'm ready to take the plunge. I'm ready to make this decision to fully identify with Jesus as my Lord and Savior. If you want to do that, you can simply write Baptism Sunday on your connection card and drop that off in the given respond boxes. But I would really encourage you to use this as an opportunity to surrender to him and experience the welcome home party that's waiting for you. With all that said, we value stories because Jesus did. He's the greatest storyteller of all. But may you more than anything else remember today that it's the stories that he tells that has a word of truth to be spoken over your life. When you're ready, feel free to respond however you feel led.